I'm Brian Hickey with Philly Voice, and you're listening to the Travel Mug Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt O'Donnell. First off, thanks. <laughs> thanks for downloading my podcast, listening to it, subscribing, whatever you will. It's been a lot of fun so far, and I know that it's very early, but I think we're going to have a lot of neat little adventures with the Travel Mug podcast. I have a lot of ideas coming up that are going to be pretty exciting and a lot of fun for me, and I hope they are going to be fun for you. So I hope you keep listening. Brian Hickey is our guest from the Philly Voice. Now, who is he? Brian's a friend. He's a fellow journalist, a unique thinker, observer of humanity, aren't we all? He's a cynic. He's a constant seeker of that one or maybe two nuggets that other journalists miss with a big story. He's a fellow University of Delaware Blue Hen, and he's a hater of Diner and Blanc, or as Brian likes to call it, Dinner and Blanc. Where did we talk? We spoke in his kitchen while his son was eating cereal, watching, I think it was an Eagles DVD. And why? Why, Brian? Well... Ever since I've known Brian Hickey, and this is going on more than 20 years, he has had a unique perspective and unflinching resolve on letting people know what that unique perspective is. Case in point, Diner and Blanc. Diner and Blanc is a wonderful thing. It's people dressing in white, gathering together in a public place, and having a meal peacefully. It's wonderful. Who could have a problem with that? Brian Hickey has a problem with it. Travel Mug, here we go. Here with Brian Hickey on the Travel Mug podcast, otherwise known as the man who hated on Dinner and Blanc. And you fully remember that, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I mean, hated is a um, the wrong tense. I think I will continue to hate it for the rest of my life. Are you surprised that to open things up, I'm bringing this up? And in fact, I have a copy of the article. And- Sure, you'd like to review it, but... Well, I mean, I remember it fully. I, I remember stopping to get that picture of a single unkempt uh, wine glass on the... Uh... So, the reason why I bring it up, and I'll, we're going to talk about how you and I have a pretty deep connection. Sure. We both went to the University of Delaware. We were both journalism students. And when I read that article, and that was... When was that? It was 2016. Yeah, 2016. Okay, so that was many Diner and Blancs ago. Yeah, I but, skipped last year. <laughs> I'm sure you did. When I read it, I'm like... That is Brian Hickey right there. <laughs> First of all, just explain the article. I, I, um, I mean, it's about me sitting down and ranting, for lack of a better term. But my, my beef with dinner on Blanc is just, I guess, the, um, the entitlement factor of shutting down public spaces so people can pay money to bring their own food and tables to eat their own food in the middle of places where... Where non non um, entitled Philadelphians might want to be on that given night, and maybe this whole sense of, I guess the one thing that people don't like about our society these days is the hey look at me all the time constantly. And was that something that kind of burned you up about it? Um, yeah, no. I mean, I've kind of fallen, even though I'm 44, I've kind of fallen into that look at me. But that's just my job as a writer and a columnist is to hey, you need to look at what I write. But um. What I didn't like in that respect were, were all the – it's like people taking pictures of their dinners and putting them on Instagram. 
it's like everybody dressed in white pretending that this is like the the bestestest thing in the world and look how classy we are because we dressed up in white and cooked our own food. You're looking at the pictures right now and it looks like you're getting angry. <laughs> I am, but you know what it was? I think how it started was I would see this on Twitter and Instagram and it just occurred to me, you know, I can write different caption for, captions for these pictures and repost them. And that kind of angered some people, like the original picture takers, insofar as they would see it and see me, like, sneering at them and wanting them. Sure, like lampooning people's own pictures of some sort, right? Yeah. Let, let, me, let me read a, a quote from the article. <laughs> <laughs> this is in the Philly Voice, obviously, which is where you work. Yep. Quote, Brian Hickey. This year's Fedoras and Flowers absurdity was held on a concrete staircase made famous in a movie that, though fictional, better represents a city than the 5,000 real people who gathered on it Thursday night. You were referring to the Art Museum steps. I was, because this year they had it out. I think it was Eakins Oval, or right around the steps. And I know a lot of people have beef with, with Rocky representing the city, and that, that's fair. I mean, he's fictional. There should have been the Joe Frazier statue decades ago. But... If you're going to look at it like as a an apples to apples type of thing, and in, in, insofar as how it represents Philly, that fictional boxer is more Philly than someone who would dress up in white and put a sparkler sparkler in the air and and yell yeehaw, look at me as I eat my uh, hummus on exotic chips. You're still seething as you look. At, I know. Did, did I you, haven't looked at it in a while. Did you ever run into people after reading your article who were there and? <laughs> had them give you their opinions on what you wrote yes and they were they were very measured in their responses actually the the, the funniest time was i we do a bar crawl in in east falls every saint patrick's day well around saint patrick's day because we don't day drink during the week and um one of the attendees wives um was there and she started a conversation with me about it and she was laughing and threatening to Forced me to go to the 2017 rendition, which I or edition, which I didn't do, and I think it was just a joke because she never pushed the issue. But um, I think people who know me take it in the spirit that that they think I mean it. I guess like I, I don't hate anything. You're a satirical ways. columnist in many regards. Satire to a certain extent, but there is a, a lot of me that, that seethes about this and like how I went wrote my rants about pickles and how they're the devil's food. Um, <laughs> like if, if something irks me, I will, I guess, channel a non-existent rage. I'll, I'll stoke my own rage to better express what I really want to say about them, like and I'll always have a line in there, like kind of measuring it out. But with dinner on Blanc, with pickles, with I don't know, with anybody who hates the Cubs, it's like I I don't know you personally, but I don't like what you look like when you're in this situation. Okay. I, I, I was going to ask you, and I think you've already begun to do that. How would you describe your work as a journalist to someone who's never read any of your work? Well, there's a few different styles I write. Like, there's stories I'll write that I'll take some time and, like, in, like not investigate, but I guess embed myself in someone's life. Are you more of an observer than a parachute in and become part of the story sort of thing? Yeah, I always hated the parachuting in. Like, when I was, before I worked at The Voice, I was at um, 
Metro for a brief spell, but the, the alt-weeklies were my real, where I really cut my teeth in the Philly market after I worked in Atlantic City. When I was in Atlantic City, it was like a, a pure adrenaline drive because I was covering the crime beat, and it was just three stories a day sometimes, churn, churn, churn. When I got to the alt-weeklies in town, that kind of taught me how to take a step back and... How I always described it is like you'll have that pack of journalists on a story on a given morning, like your morning, your morning newscast, right? If there's a huge story, there's going to be every channel there. I would take a few steps back at that pack on the big stories in Atlantic City. And then when everybody was done with the lights and the cameras and the microphones, I would walk over and say, here's my card. I know you're probably talked out about this right now. Give me a call when you're ready to talk and I'll, be, I'll come back when nobody's around and, and that's how we're going to do it. And I always got my best stories that way because the first day, first day, second day stories is like the journalism, like insider baseball chatter on it. Um, a lot of first day stories are similar. I've kind of crafted to create a career out of the second day story, even if I'm writing them the first day. Like it's step back, look, and then ask the questions that nobody else is asking. And then... I can't. I can barely draw a stick figure, so I don't want to say there's any sort of fashion of art involved in what I do. But what I like to do is paint a picture of who this person is or who these people are as they go through this situation. That that is the reason you're getting to know them in the first place. Like a couple of weeks ago, I wrote a story about this couple in Queen Village, who were um, they got a nice place on Front Street. This noisy gate downstairs drove them insane. Like they had to move out for seven months, live with their mom. They, they said they couldn't have a family because they didn't want to do the family-making activities at her mom's house. And I should have seen this coming in retrospect. But I like I got like I interviewed them. I got to know. I'm like I really feel bad about you. Like I, me writing can help people, mm -hmm. and that's a part of what I do too. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, they were just a pile on, like these these entitled rich people. Wow, there's so many problems in the world, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, like they still hear this gate vibrate 150 times a day, and then this pile on. It's to, to them, that gate is real high up in the list of things that are annoying them at that very moment. Yeah, it, it's imagine me having a dinner on Blanc in my backyard every week. <laughs> like that, it, That's what their life is on, on a 150 times a day level. You know the phrase, hiding in plain sight pretty well is that maybe another way to describe things where y you get so caught up in the whole frenzy of things that sometimes you don't see things that are right there in front of you yeah i mean that's yeah that's a good way to describe it um thank you <laughs> <laughs> it's like the whole inverted pyramid thing like you know the who what when where and how but then you take the step back and like look at the bigger picture around it like if look out the like there's that tree there you could write a story oh it's green it's mm -hmm. there's snow on it but then like i would never do this but like when was that tree planted? Who planted it? Like, what was the struggle in their life? Like, and that could become a story. And well, I mean, that I think that explains it pretty well. And that's the way that I've always known you. Uh, again, we're going to get into some of our background and how we connect from back at University of Delaware. But uh, a couple things I want to ask you before we hit a break here. Yep. Do people in Philadelphia have a certain attitude that binds them together? Or is that just sort of a farce in that we really aren't this town of tough people who are uh, that, that are extremely tough on athletes or anyone else who is in a, a position of power until we realize how valuable they are and that makes us love them forever. 
I think there's some validity to that. Like when, once I got out of college, like I worked in South Carolina for a year and a half, and I worked down the shore for five years. And when I came back, I, I came back in 2000. When I was in South Carolina, people like saw me as this Yankee, for lack of a better term, but like fitting all of the the Philadelphia stereotypes. I don't think they are stereotypes. I think, and I think. We saw it at its best when the Eagles won. Like, everybody came together as one. Like, I, there were columns to the contrary that I could carry on about for hours. But um, my experience was, like, hugging random strangers. Everybody, like, just on the same team. Like, this is Philly. Like, even though I moved out of Philly in July to the close burbs, like, it's, it's an extended family in a lot of ways. Yeah, we have our problems, but... Um, at the end of the day, I think Philly would fight to the death for Philly as opposed to Philly not giving a heck about Baltimore. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. I, I felt the same exact thing that you just described at the parade where I was down near the sports complex, Broad and Patterson, and looking back, I was like, you know what? That was one of the few instances in recent times, especially during the social media age, where you were, I was with a large group of people, and every single person, 100%, was truly happy. Oh, absolutely. We were on the parkway, and um, I, I, it brought tears to my eyes, like like scanning the crowd. I mean, it was people as long as the eye could see, and like climbing trees, and it's like, it's like, yeah, this is what it was like. It was worth the wait in a lot of ways, and just to see it like that. I mean, my son's seven; he doesn't, he's spoiled. He's not going to have to wait decades for a parade. Um, but to see it just it was just such a happy time and i think philly's on that kind of roll like with the pope and the draft and it's things are moving in our direction and i, I hope it doesn't revert i hope it doesn't fall back into like angry 70s 80s philly in a way it may it may i mean <laughs> it, it could the first time if wentz isn't ready and Foles is still here and he throws an interception Ooh. game 1 he probably won't get a game 1 but it won't take long for it won't take long for Philly to revert to Philly, but I think the shine of this, like I'm a Cubs fan, so I'm still on the shine from them winning in 16. I, I think there is a carry over here that Philly has changed, even in a, in, minor is probably not the right word, but even in a small way, Philly's changed for the better because of this. It's never going to go away, and that's, that's pretty exciting. A seminal moment. It was. It absolutely was. It was, it was I'll never forget it, and I'm sure everybody who was there will never forget it. I mean, my son's in the other room right now watching the DVR game as he waits for his two-hour <laughs> delayed bus. When we come back for the Travel Mug podcast here, we're going to talk about the day that, and this is serious business, the day that Brian Hickey almost died. Dun, dun, dun. We'll be right back. Real quick, everyone, I'm soliciting ideas from you for the Travel Mug podcast. Now, way, way back when, I used to have a podcast back when podcasting wasn't all that cool. It was called Deep Six, and it was about off-ball, unique, and sometimes ignored topics. And the Travel Mug podcast is kind of like that. So we're rebooting the idea in a different name. And again, I want to hear what you think and if you have any ideas for a future episode. So contact me on Twitter. That's Matt underscore O'Donnell. I'm also on Facebook. I think it's facebook.com slash Matt O'Donnell TV. I'm on Instagram. My handle is on Instagram, the Matt O'Donnell. And it's not because I'm pretentious. It's because 
Just Matt O'Donnell was not available. We're also on Tumblr, Pinterest, and Ello, although I really don't understand those social networks. So just send me a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, because if it fits in the travel mug, I'm drinking it. Back with Brian Hickey from the Philly Voice on the Travel Mug Podcast. Getting pretty serious here, Brian. Yep. And you know this full well, but I'll let the listeners in on this. In late 2008, which is about 10 years ago, you were walking through Collingswood, New Jersey, and you were hit by a car. The driver took off. You were left in the street. You went into a coma. It was induced. (laughs) It was an induced coma, so my head wouldn't explode. I went to see you in the hospital, and... I remember seeing you as just this bloated mass on a on a hospital bed. Angela, your wife, was there, and you were there, and you weren't. Right. You came out of it, obviously. But, I mean, looking back at that, for one, do you remember being in the coma? Um, yes and no. Like, I remember when I, after I got hit, like, once I woke up and learned how to walk and all that again, I went back and wrote a story about it for Philly Mag, and I interviewed, like, the. I was at a bar in South Jersey. It was the night, day after Thanksgiving, so it was like a high school reunion of sorts, and I was walking back to the speed line. Um, so I interviewed people I was with there. Then I interviewed the guy who found me in the street because his dog was barking at the window. The, the EMTs got me to the hospital, trauma docs, people who came and saw me, and I don't remember... I don't remember getting hit. I remember up to about like 10 minutes beforehand, like when I was leaving to walk back. Um, But things that people told me during those interviews matched up with things that I was, I don't want to say imagining, um, somewhat dreaming about when I was in the coma. Like thinking as a person who is in this coma. Yes. If there's, I don't know how I would describe it. It's like, you're not actively thinking it. It's you're thinking for yourself. So it's you're you're along for the mental ride. You're sort of watching things on a screen. All yeah, time. I mean it's kind of like tripping. If I can harken back to the the days of the Grateful <laughs> Dead, but it's like bouncing from thing to thing and place to place. Like people were talking to me about football and Friday Night Lights was a big show then. So part of my my coma trip was being in Texas watching the actual people from the show like play a football game around Thanksgiving. And then I, I wasn't, I don't know who was talking about New Year's or anything, but there was like a mummer's, a mummer's moment where I was sitting in a recliner in a deli in South Philly. Um, there was a, a, my wisdom teeth taken out in Seattle. So it was like stories I was working on at the time touched in like, impacted where I thought I was in my head during this joy. It was kind of like a cross-country voyage, like Seattle sure. and Texas and Pittsburgh. How long were you in the coma? I think it was... like By the letter of the, the medical documents, I think it was 10 or 11 days of induced, but I wasn't really with it from the time I got hit until the day or two before Christmas, so about a month. Like, I didn't realize where I was or anything. It's not like you wake up from a coma. You steadily gain sort of a cognitive state, right? Yeah, they're not... What I think is what happens is they they stop giving you the drip or or injections that put you to sleep, for lack of a better term. Um, 
and you kind of drift back into reality. So I don't get, I don't remember. I was at Cooper and they took me to McGee in Center City. I don't remember that trip or anything. Like I have a picture of me getting wheeled in, um, but I don't remember that. I just remember kind of waking up and I think that the Eagles were playing the Cowboys on, it was either Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve that year. It was 08. It was the year they lost in the NFC Championship to Arizona. I don't remember the date of the game. But that's like the first time, like my cousin Jeff and my father-in-law Chick were there. And they said that was like the first time they saw me being me. Okay. No out-of-body experience that some people see, like light and tunnels or... No, I think a lot of what it is, and I've, I've wanted to do a story on this for a while, and I still may. I want to talk to a lot of people who have been in comas to talk about their experience in it. And I, I think everybody's is different. I think it'd be fascinating. Yeah, it would be great. I just can't, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to be able to find these people because that means something horrible happened, but there it happens. Um, I think a lot of what you see, like the books about like seeing dead relatives and this white light and Jesus waving you in. I think a lot of that is impacted by what your mind is beforehand. And it's not that you see what you want to see, but you see what your mind is conditioned to see, I guess. Um, I think I know what you mean. Sort of like yeah. what your mind is hoping to see. Yeah. And, and it's still, I mean, it's trying to fill so many blanks because you're just sitting there or laying down in a, in a hospital room. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a relaxing. I mean, it really, it genuinely is. It was, it was... It was, there's no pain in it, I okay, guess. Okay, okay. So um, it was like a mind vacation or a body vacation, really. You just yeah. didn't, didn't do anything. Yeah, just laying there in, in Camden listening to helicopters come in. We're, we're, we seem to be mitigating this whole <laughs> idea of being in a coma. Uh, the, the driver, this has been 10 years now, almost. Yep. The driver still has never come forward. Yeah, and I think in a lot, in a lot of hit-and-run cases, that's it's if you don't get them quick, you're not going to get them at all unless they have a tinge of guilt or somebody rats them out. Like they, um, my father and, and wife like put out flyers <clears throat> in local body that. shops and like trying. a lot of the hit and run cases I've covered here have come from body shops where it's word gets out. I don't remember hit and runs being covered as, as intensely as like before as after. And that's not, that's not trying to say Hickey got hit. Now everyone's covering hit and runs because that's not the case at all. It's just the more I'm paying attention to them. And sure. I think I, I, do, I do notice, I think the numbers would bear this out. They're treated with a lot more news power. It's not the right word. But, like, they get a lot more attention now. And if, if, it, if I'd impacted that initially, it's because it's a member of the media getting hit, not because it's me. It's like, oh, that could have been me. I'm going to cover this story kind of thing. Um, have you formed a narrative as to what, has happened to this person since the accident and what this person may be doing and thinking? I gave up worrying about it a few years ago because there was a lot of rage and it just wasn't healthy. And then we had a son a year and a half later and that kind of pulled me in a different direction. Um, I hope their life is miserable. I mean, I'm not, it's, I'm that not is a very, it. that's a very hickey thing to say right yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, it's I, it's, I hope they pay for what they did. Like, they didn't, they didn't get the two years for what they did to me, but um, I hope something bad, not to anyone they love, because it's not anyone they love's fault, but I, I mean, even if it's just a shattered arm or something, like, just, just a modicum of pain to okay. even it out, you know? There's a ledger, there's a karma ledger, and I, I'm convinced that they will get theirs. 
But I'm just not angry about it. It's why waste time thinking about something that's never going to come to pass. I interviewed you for Action News after you came out of things and you yeah. were able to talk. I remember you were wearing a, a helmet. I still have you, it. You still have it? Yeah. And you were like, I'm sorry I look ridiculous here, but i got to wear this thing in case I fall on my head. <laughs> but the, the one thing I always remember about my interview with you was when I think I was walking out and I looked down on your coffee table and there was the book The Old Man in the Sea by oh, Ernest yeah. Hemingway. Yeah. Okay? And I looked at him like, hey, you love him too. And you're like, yeah, I just got to figure out what my great American novel is going to be. Yeah. And you're being serious, but also sarcastic in the same way. And by the way, that's my favorite book of all time. Mine too. It's, okay. So it's on my, my home office desk. <laughs> I read it a couple times a year. I love the book. But every writer wants to write that book that everyone adores one day for years and decades upon. So have you figured it out yet? Is What's it going to be? No, I have no idea. Because you know what it is? It's... it's since a lot's changed since then, like culturally and societally speaking, like with a lot more of a go, go, go culture. And it's almost, I don't, A, I don't know if I have the attention span. Like, I don't know if that's an impact of the brain injury or just me being torn in a thousand different directions to sit down and focus on one story for that long. Like in my work at Philly Voice, like I'll have a story I'm chipping away at for a couple months, but then I'm also churning. Like, and it's just this cultural churn where you need like uh, not content per se but like more 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 like what's my t what am I going to look at now people read stories for like less than a minute so it's like who's going to sit there and for five hours and read well not five hours hopefully it'd be longer than that but um I would still like to do it I just don't know if I have the attention span to do it mm. but it would be along the the Hemingway parable lines, like because that's a that story's a parable, and it's, it's just, isn't it's, just real quick. I don't want this to be all about you know old man in the sea, but the end when he forms a sign of the cross, almost the uh, the man, the old man. It, the story was kind of about a Jesus character who's persecuted for what he's saying, and then he realizes at the end that he was always right, and they were all wrong. Is that is that your read on it? Yeah, that, and I think my takeaway is you can have this this elusive goal that you just, well, it's, it's about him being in a fishing slump and then he makes the big catch and the catch is just stripped bare by the time he gets back to the, the pier or I don't think they had piers in Cuba, whatever, um, in the fifties. But, um, my takeaway is like, you can chase your dreams and then you think you get them and then they get stripped away. Do you go at them again? Kind of. And, I think the answer to that is yes. Like you, you can't be singularly focused on it, but it's okay to have something out there that you may never get. I guess go back to the hit and run driver who I'm never going to get. Like it's a, but it, that would, it would be an anger. Like if that was the novel, it would be Hickey's angry again today. Like it's worse than dinner on block. Um, but yeah, I like that interpretation. Yeah, maybe I'll do maybe I'll do the great American novel about dinner on block this year. Go to the big festival in France. When the Travel Mug podcast comes back, we are going to deep dive into our shared history at the University of Delaware when we come right back. Hi, everyone. The Travel Mug podcast is sort of like my busy work. It's the extra thing that, well, one of the extra things that I like to do aside from my job. But my real job, my day job, is Action News Mornings every weekday. From 4.30 to 7 a.m., it's myself, Tamala Edwards, Karen Rogers, 
David Murphy. We have a lot of fun, and we tell you things that you didn't know when you went to bed. So join us every weekday on Action News Mornings. Brian Hickey with us from the Philly Voice. Brian Hickey and I were young, budding journalism students at the University of Delaware. I think we first met at the Review, which is the student-run campus newspaper. Uh, We held a variety of positions there. Uh, This is back in the early 1990s. Um, Thinking back to that time... I worked there for two. You were probably two or three years. I was uh, three. three. Yeah. So you were a, a prodigy, and I was sort of like a slacker. But <laughs> but you were no, you were you were distracted with the radio too. Like I was just pure newspaper. You had the radio. Yeah, I, I, I was a news director at WVUD, which is a campus radio station, and I also had other things. But uh, we won't get into that. But <laughs> the thing I want to ask you about that was: is there something you remember about that time as a student with all these dreams? Uh, and, and actually, like doing it because the review is a newspaper. It's not yeah. like this thing that the, the university puts out. It's it's totally run by students. And anything that you like really, you know, harken back and say that was good, man. Um, I remember the first story I wrote. There was a, a pullover drug bust outside my dorm in Rodney E, and that was when I was in the intro class three oh seven, and I um. Just it, a month in, really, and nobody who's in the intro class like jumps into the newspaper right away. You have to earn your way in. I'm like, listen, I watched this drug bus. Like, I want to write something up. You guys gonna run it? And they're like, yeah, sure. And then bang, it was just like I was the uh, the, the the young sophomore kid who's willing to write anything. Um, the my my biggest takeaway was almost getting thrown out of school my junior year because of the. Um, the April Fool's issue we did. Um, it was more of a Jeff Perlman thing. I remember that. Yeah, and we you know Jeff Perlman. You might know him. Uh, he's written a lot of books. Uh, yeah. He worked for Sports Illustrated. Wrote a great thing on the Cowboys, yep. on Roger Clemens. Yep. He's the guy that got Barry John Bonds. Barry Bonds, yeah. John Rocker. He did a thing on John Rocker that was really controversially Atlanta Braves uh, yeah. closer. But he he pulled a lot of these things back when we were at Delaware too, and you were a part of. It. Oh yeah, um, we got pulled into the dean of students' office. We just went overboard. Let's, I mean, me and him together, it's combustible. We'll just, <laughs> that's, they never should have put us in the same staff. Um, pulled into the dean of students. It was, we wrote, I think what got us pulled into the dean of students was the imaginary um, commencement speech where we were not identifying the school president. And we ran a picture of him. It was David Roselle at the time with this real skinny black bar. To barely covered even the the whites of his eyes, just to like kind of hide his identity and uh, stuff about midgets and Snoop Dogg and just things you shouldn't do in a, a cultured society. But you could get away with because you were doing a not to minimize the, the paper, but you're learning. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it's you you live and you learn, and that goes career wise. It's between my time at the Review and my time at the Alt Weeklies and the Atlantic City Press, it, it all helped form what I am today. Um, we made a lot of money at the paper. Um, like we had our own advertising, like we had a million dollar, like surplus that you had to get rid of at the end of the year. So we were able to send a reporter and a photographer to Oklahoma city. When that bombing happened, we were able to like put computers in for the whole next staff. Um, I don't really remember what my big story was there. Um, I'll tell you the, the seminal moment for me at the review was I got a cover story. 
And I, back back in the day, and I may do this now, but you know, a lot of people don't read newspapers, so they don't appreciate the fact that it was it's hard to lay things out and make sure the advertisements oh, yeah. all fit and the stories are just long enough. And I remember bringing my girlfriend up there at the time to show them the the, the pre press thing and the editor at the time Doug Donovan who now yeah. works at the Baltimore Sun yeah. came up to me he's like you can't show people who w don't work at the paper <laughs> the paper before it becomes a paper but I just remember that like, I'm like wow I'm on the, the cover of the review yeah. I, I finally made it yeah oh, I mean that was fun I mean then seeing your byline on the front page is good and I still have um I was executive editor in my senior year so I still have like the entire year in a bound edition upstairs in the closet somewhere I might have a cover frame I don't know well, that's a high school paper I think I have framed. Let, let me ask you this. So knowing everything you know now about the newspaper industry, which personally, I think it's like a lot of industries, it's not it's not going to like disappear one day. It's it's, you know, it's going through growing pains and maybe it, it's hit its peak already. But what you know now about journalism as an industry, would you still have done it? Oh, absolutely. Um, no, there's no question about it. That's what I was, I don't want to say born to do, but I guess I was born to do because all along it was my journalism career, quote unquote, started freshman or sophomore year of high school when an English teacher just wanted me to shut up in class. So he like got me involved in the student paper and I was like editor of that junior, senior year. So what? it was really like a pacifier for you. Like send Brian over there to work on the newspaper and he'll be quiet. Brian's binky is a career in journalism, <laughs> but it didn't really work. I mean, nothing shut me up. If anything, it amplified me, but I mean, I'm still that kind of loud mouth kid in the back of the classroom. Like not being able to shut up. I just do it by typing instead of screaming with a megaphone. Mm -hmm. um, are you hopeful about the being a journalist these days and, and the role of media and, and how social media is creeping in and it's kind of ruining things away because now you don't know what's true and what's not unless you, you know, really search for the brands out there. I, th I mean, and th it is a confusing time. There's, this, there's just so many voices clamoring and screaming and yelling at each other and just like you don't you really can't tell what stories are true and, and false to a certain extent but if you write stories about people and you get to their heart and they can stand there and say this is yeah you you accurately captured what I was talking about i think that's a good way to break through it there's going to be haters on everything like anytime i write a story there's there's one commenter who's who's yelling and screaming, oh, you moved out of Philly. And then there's another one who's like liberal, blah, blah, blah. Even the story could be measured. I mean, I have like Republicans in Philly. They always thank me for giving their candidates the time to listen. And it's – I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, white, black, yellow. Like it's – if you have an interesting story, I'm going to tell it. And while I don't – I do not do a good job of masking my uh, my thoughts on social media whatsoever. Those don't impact the stories I write when they're about things that challenge my views on the world. And I hope readers appreciate that because I think – and I think they do because, like, yes, we know what Hickey thinks about this. But, yes, Hickey wrote a fair story about it that let us – let us get a fair ear – let us get a fair airing <clears throat> while the other side got the same fair, the fairness. It's all about fairness, and it's all about, I mean, I might misspell a name from time to time, but it's all about accuracy, too. And if, you, if, you, if you're true to yourself and you're true to your readers, it, the, the clamoring and the nonstop screaming doesn't matter because you know you've done a good job. And 
have told a story fairly. And that goes back to our days at Delaware and back to my early days as a journalist. Like you have to tell, you have to tell the story right. And if you tell the story right, you're 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 buffered from any of that. And while people can misrepresent. Uh, Case in point, there's a gentleman, Robert Barnes. He was a homeless guy. He got beaten to death outside a gas station in Olney by a group of three women and three children. Remember that? Yeah. Um, that story was turned into by, I'm not even going to use the term because I hate it, so by people who would rather misrepresent stories of something they aren't. Um, news. Um, it was presented as Trump voter beaten by Democrats. And I wrote a story. Like, I remember I tra- that. Yeah. I tracked it down, like where it came from. No, this is what happened, and this is why. It was, wasn't was so much a factcheck.org move, but it was like, I know this story, and I'm not going to let, for his family, I'm not going to let the story be misrepresented as that. And they appreciated it, and I'm, sh- I'm sure a lot of other people did too, except uh, the people who turned it into that fake narrative. I like the thing you said where it's it's about people because really we're just we're, we're finding people who are interesting and they don't have to be popular or a celebrity they just have and everyone has a story i remember in journalism class dennis jackson i think it was yeah. he said sometimes i wish that you just go over to the phone book and you just find a name in there and you write a story on them you got to find something interesting the guy's from the south so i'm doing the southern yeah. accent but, but it's true oh absolutely i mean i'll, I'll stop my car sometimes like there's a story I'm working on now where it's actually, I, thanks to social media, I saw this sign on the window of a, a deli that said, if you're homeless, come in, we will feed you. I'm like, that's That shouldn't just that's be a story. That shouldn't just be a tweet that gets cycled through the system. So I went and the, the, the owner wasn't there the day I drove by, but I'm still hoping to hear from him. That's going to be a story because there was a dude holding the door outside. So when I go back to talk to the family, it's going to, I'm going to talk to the homeless guy out there who, who gets food because of this kind owner. It's a simple little thing. It makes it may make a difference in twenty people's lives, but that's the kind of story I want to tell. I mean, it's final question for Brian Hickey: Would you ever dine in public wearing nothing but white? No. Nah. Well, <laughs> if I was going to write a sarcastic column about having finally attended dinner on Blanc, I would, but then I would justify it in my head by having, it was like the, what's the line from Breakfast Club, the, the required uniform? <laughs> but I would wear an off-white and maybe like with some flair on it. Or a ragu stain right in the center. There we go. Like I'll pre-stain <laughs> my clothing and, and bring a pot of gravy. Brian Hickey from Philly Voice. It's great to talk to you again, and uh, I enjoyed our conversation. I hope everyone did who uh, have us in their ears right now. Amen. Thank you. And that about does it for the Travel Mug Podcast. Our thanks to Brian Hickey from the Philly Voice for being our guest. It was a lot of fun talking to Brian and catch up. hope you enjoyed it, too. Thank you for allowing me to exist in your ears if you are listening to this with your earbuds or maybe your car speakers maybe you're going to work I like to listen to podcasts on my way to work because I feel like I learned something and I take it with me to my job instead of just jamming out on the rock and roll every morning alright travel mug over and out see you next time